0: Hello and welcome to Vitality Radio. I'm Jared St. Clair. I'm here with you every single week and it's great to be with you again on another episode of Vitality Radio and the Vitality Radio podcast. Vitality Radio is always brought to you by Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful, Utah. Give us a call, 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. No matter where you're at, If you're within the sound of my voice, you can call us. You can also email us. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash vitalityradio. You can find us at vitalityradio.com where right now we have all the shows and a little bit of other stuff, but there will be way more content coming to vitalityradio.com over the next month or so. And, of course, you can listen to the show live every Saturday morning from 9 to 10 on 1280 AM and 97.5 FM, or you can catch it as a podcast whenever you please on any of the major podcast carriers. We are out there, and, of course, on a whole bunch of the minor ones as well. Soon enough, we'll be on YouTube also working on that over the next couple of weeks. Vitality Radio has been going for now close to... 12 years. It's hard to believe. I guess it's about 11 and a half at this point. And uh, I just absolutely love bringing this show to you. I've been jotting down ideas for future shows. I've got about maybe 17 or 18 of them in my little notes section of my iPhone. And I was thinking about uh, what shows I've done in the past that I really enjoyed doing, but that I haven't done in years. And so, you know, updates needed, uh, things that probably you haven't heard before. And uh, I am really excited for today's topic. It is going to be what is in your medicine cabinet. And we might dive into other areas of your bathroom as well. Uh, Under the counter, what you might clean it with in the drawer, what you might brush your teeth with, and so on and so forth. And what I aim to do is expose some of the things that we are commonly using in our bathrooms or in our medicine cabinets that I believe there are much, 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 much better natural alternatives for. And I'm going to go into all of those things today on Vitality Radio Of course, I had an interesting thing happen to me uh, earlier. One of the things I like to do when I'm prepping the show is think back through my week at Vitality Nutrition and what uh, listeners may have said to me. Sometimes I get text messages. Sometimes I get emails. Sometimes I get notes on Facebook. Sometimes I get uh, uh, instant messages. Anyway, all kinds of different ways that you can contact me and sometimes I get it in person. And I had a regular listener come in uh, just a few days ago, and he said, hey, uh, just a little note for you. Bring the rant back, because last week I didn't do a rant. I mean, I ranted a little bit, kind of threw bogus aloe vera under the bus, stuff like that. But this week... Fear not, there is a rant, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So let's go ahead and just get down to business with the morning rant. Okay, so something happened on Facebook. A lot's been happening on Facebook lately. You know, it's really interesting If you don't follow me on Facebook, uh, Facebook facebook.com slash Vitality Radio is the radio site. You're also welcome to follow me personally, uh, Jared St. Clair, on Facebook if you would like to. I pretty much accept all comers and I only uh, block anybody that turns out to be a troll, which thankfully I've had virtually none of uh, over the years. As such, I have a lot of people on there that I don't really know, but that know me. And, uh, of course, when you dive into other people's posts and and write things, you'll hear from them as well. And a friend of mine who is in the natural products industry, Todd is his name, he said to me, or to, to Facebook, I should say, very, very few doctors, he said, uh, actually know enough about nutrition to give you any useful information or something along those lines. And holy smokes, did he start a war with that commentary. Now, it's very interesting to me because to me, that was like, yeah, I know. But uh, to a lot of other people, it's whoa, 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 wait a minute. You be careful what you say about my doctor. And I get that. You put a lot of faith in your doctor and you want to believe that he or she is excellent at what they do, and I'm sure many of them are. However, when we look at the system in which doctors are cultivated, so to speak, which is medical school, uh, he's got a really, really valid point. Now, I jumped in And this was the statement I made on his Facebook post, and I bring this up because I got challenged a little bit on it, and I want to tell you exactly what I said so you can understand sort of where I'm coming from. I said, the love and affection people have for their beloved doctors is hard to believe, isn't it? When you consider iatrogenic death is, depending on who is reporting it, the number one or number three cause of death in this nation. For those uninitiated, iatrogenic death is death caused by modern medicine. By their own admission, the Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, states that at least 100,000 Americans die at the hand of doctors annually. This isn't drug overdose on a prescription. This is just medicine practiced badly by doctors who know a lot less about what they are doing than they would ever admit to. According to other studies, iatrogenic death makes up over 300,000 deaths a year, that is an absurdly high number. Also, please, with the doctors work so hard and go to medical school so long and have to continue with education forever. That was in reference to another post someone made. Their education in medical school came primarily from the drug companies. Their continuing education comes primarily from drug reps or other doctors being paid by drug companies. On top of that, they get paid plenty for the years of schooling. Also, just like auto mechanics just being certified doesn't make you good at fixing cars. Having an MD behind your name doesn't make you good at fixing people. Now, I'm going to go on and I'm going to explain myself in just a minute because that probably sounded pretty harsh towards doctors. So someone, uh, I guess, confronted me on it a little bit. Said, Jared, what is your answer to these problems then? Don't go to doctors? And I said, yes, as little as possible. At 48 years old, I have only ever been on one antibiotic and four prescription drugs. Doctors have their place. I was happy to have one to set my son's broken wrist and repair my daughter's hernia. For emergent care in particular, I'm grateful to Modern Medicine for many aspects of what they provide. It can truly be life-saving. However, if I were to contract COVID, for instance, I wouldn't go anywhere near a hospital. I would handle the infection myself. The same can be said of almost all infections. 85% of sinus infections, for example, are viral, and yet 85% of patients receive an antibiotic. That is bad medicine, and it's not okay. It is weakening the immune system of our society to the point that we have to run and hide when something like COVID comes along. Education is key. Relying on a doctor for all of your health needs is like relying on a car salesman for all of your automotive research. He will sell you what he knows. In the case of doctors, that is almost always drugs or surgery. In rare cases, those are necessary. In most cases, they are not. Now, I brought this up mostly because she had a valid point, a valid question, in that, what do I do about these problems? You know, what's my answer to the problems of atrogenic death? Just don't go to doctors? It's a really good question and I hope I answered it okay there, but let's go in and dig a little deeper into the original comments that Todd made. He said, according to U.S. News, uh, or sorry, he said, remember, that very few doctors have any real knowledge on health and nutrition. I mean, that's essentially what his words were. And according to U.S. News and World Report, he's absolutely right. On average, U.S. medical schools offer only 19.6 hours of nutrition education across four years of medical school. That's less than five hours per year. Now think of how grueling medical school is. There's a lot of stuff there. Five hours a year on on education for nutrition. My understanding also is that most of that happens in the first year to two years before they're actually involved with patients on any level, which also puts it kind of further back in the recesses of their minds. Given this, it's not exactly shocking that many doctors would receive a failing grade on nutritional know-how, and that's according to the U.S. News and World Report, not me. A 2016 study in the International Journal of Adolescent Medicine and Health assessed the basic nutritional knowledge of four-year medical osteopathic school graduates entering a pediatric residency program and found that on average, the incoming interns fresh out of medical school answered only 52% of the 18 questions correctly. They were given 18 questions on basic nutritional knowledge and could only get half of them right. That is, in no uncertain terms, ridiculous, uh, absurd, inexcusable. Why has nutrition been given a short shrift in medical schools, the magazine asks. There are several reasons, especially a lack of funding and a shortage of trained faculty to provide high quality nutrition instruction and a focus on treating rather than preventing diseases, says Marion Nestle, a professor of nutrition, food studies, and public health at New York New- University. The assumption is that doctors will just refer patients to dietitians. Now, a couple of issues there. First off, a referral to a dietitian, I think we all know, is unlikely to get filled. But even still, what dietitians are learning when it comes to health and nutrition, perhaps more dangerous than what doctors aren't learning. We can go on to that on another show. According to Time Magazine, the AMSA, the American Medical Students Association, graded the top 150 medical schools in America from A to F based on how much influence they receive from big pharma. Now, why do I bring this up talking about nutrition? Well, Dr. Marion Nestle said that part of it is a lack of funding and a shortage of trained faculty to provide high quality nutrition instruction. And that is probably absolutely true. I don't doubt that at all but it's not because there's a lack of funding. There is a lack of funding in this specific area. Now, back to where the funding comes from. According to the American Medical Students Association, they graded 150 medical schools in America from A to F based on how much influence they received from Big Pharma, F being the most influence. Harvard Medical School, of all schools, posted an F. And while Harvard might be the highest profile name that was posted on AMSA's grade list, it was hardly the only one that flunked. 40 out of 150 schools surveyed received F grades and only 22 got an A or a B. Of course, nutrition takes a back seat. A really, really far back seat. I mean, back of the bus, no, worse than that. More like the 42nd row on a jumbo jet it's way back there. Why? Because nutrition keeps people off of drugs. That is literally the last thing pharma wants. If you think this is overblown, according to NPR, about 13.5% of the University of Oklahoma Medical Center's budget came from industrial pharmaceutical sources. Drug giants such as AstraZeneca gave eight hundred and eighteen thousand, Merck gave eight hundred thousand, Novartis gave almost seven hundred thousand, Pharmacia and Upjohn gave almost six hundred thousand. There were one hundred and eighty-three industrial pharmaceutical grants that year, totaling almost fourteen million dollars. That is a medical school with only a total of five hundred and eighty-five students. Think about that for a minute. That is almost $25,000 per student per year donated by big pharma companies. When you consider that 57% of Oklahoma's medical, uh, medical school budget came from the federal government, specifically the National Institutes of Health, who we have already established is heavily influenced by big pharma. In fact, of the FDA's drug approval budget comes from pharma. Yes, that's 75%. And from my research, it appears that 60% of NIH funding comes from big pharma. So think about this for a minute. In the case of Oklahoma School of Medicine, they have 585 students. Their budget apparently is about $100 million annually. 57% 57% of that comes from the NIH. About 14% of that comes from Big Pharma directly. But according to my research, 60% of NIH funding comes from Big Pharma. If you combine all that and do the math, that would mean that about 48% of Oklahoma School of Medicine is funded directly or indirectly by Big Pharma. 48% when you also consider that they have heavy influence on the actual text that is being used in medical school, in some cases, writing the entire book, we have a problem. So, of course, medical schools are not focused on nutrition. The budget doesn't allow for nutrition or nutrition professors outside of 19 hours per four-year degree Because Big Pharma isn't interested in teaching nutrition to anyone, least of all the doctors who have the pens that write their prescriptions. If that isn't bad enough, there's one more excuse offered up by Dr. David Katz from Yale University Prevention Research Center. He says, the medical school curriculum is crowded and it's hard to make room for new priorities. The basic structure of medical education was put in place in 1920, long before lifestyle-related chronic disease was a major public health focus. In 1920? <laughs> That's 100 years! Can you imagine if medical schools had chosen not to change their entire curriculum in the last 10 or 100 years? Of course it has evolved many, many times since then. And yet, nutrition has been left behind for over a 100 years of medicine in America. So, to sum it up, no, I am not saying do not go to your doctor. If you feel you need to go to your doctor, do so. What I am telling you is to expect little, if any help with nutrition and lifestyle and expect to receive a prescription for most ailments. Or do what I do. Educate yourself and take care of your own health needs the vast majority of the time. In my opinion, we have become a society that is far too willing to just offer up our bodies and minds to the established powers that be. This applies to medicine and also to media and politicians. If it is good enough for the masses, then it is good enough for me. I'm sorry, it isn't good enough for me, and it shouldn't be good enough for you either. Misinformation is rampant. Look at the world and our country right now. It is literally a burning mess. Following the herd isn't good enough. Be vigilant. Learn for yourself what is and isn't good for your body. And do not assume that because the government or your doctor says it is good for you, That it actually is. The influence of pharma is unprecedented and frightening. We no longer have the luxury of just saying, Yes, doctor, give my child that shot, write me that prescription, schedule me for that surgery. Get their suggestions and then read and ponder your decisions. In America today, we spend more time reading consumer reports before buying a lawnmower than we do before filling a prescription. Why is this the case? Do you really trust Pfizer and Merck more than you trust Honda or Toro? They are all selling something. So it's buyer beware. Buyer beware. All right, there's your rant for the day. I've got a really good second half of the show for you. I can't wait to deliver it here in just a second. In the meantime, I'll remind you that you can get in touch with us about anything that you hear on Vitality Radio directly at our phone number, 801-292-6662. And if you're in Bountiful, Utah or near Bountiful, Utah, uh, or you're passing through like a few people have and have stopped, uh, we would love to see you in person. 107 South 500 West in Bountiful is the address. If you're not near Bountiful and you still want our help, there is, uh, there's a lot of options. You can still call that phone number. We'll happily consult with you over the phone, or you can chat with us on our website, vitalitynutrition.com. There is a new chat feature, and you'll either reach myself or my son, Bridger, and we will be happy to answer your questions there as well. If we aren't readily available there, when you leave a chat message, uh, we will respond, and uh, that will come to you as an email, uh, as long as your email is uh, logged uh, into the site. So hopefully that's helpful as well. And of course, you can check out uh, you know all of our products at vitalitynutrition.com. As well. Okay, so now let's get into the second half of the show. Okay, so I've got a few more things that I want to get to. I hope you enjoyed the first part of the show. And uh, now I'm going to be kind of rapid fire through some things that are in your medicine cabinet likely anyway, are in most medicine cabinets, and also some other things we find in the bathroom of the average American household. Uh, We're going to talk about toothpaste, and we're going to talk about mouthwash, but we're also going to talk about um, neosporin and a variety of other things. My goal here is basically to make you aware, if you aren't already, of what is typically being used and uh, why I probably would recommend not using it anymore, and then what you can use instead as a natural alternative. And because I probably have more content than I have time for, we're going to jump right in. So what's in your medicine cabinet? One of the most common things would be a fever reducer. And the first thing I have to say about that is go back a few episodes on the Vitality Radio podcast towards the very beginning of the podcast episodes where I say, Be careful, fevers are our friend's. We don't want to reduce fevers as a general rule. Even if we have a miserable child who's got a fever of 102 or whatever and isn't sleeping well, we must remember that the fever is good for the body. It is the body's natural immune response, trying to kill off whatever is invading and causing havoc in the system, and reducing the fever can oftentimes just prolong the infection. That is not just herbal guy talking, but a lot of doctors are telling their patients that now. And most of the information I got for the show that I uh, did on fevers specifically actually came from MDs. And it is something that I think we just are so wound up in comfort now in America and not having pain and discomfort that we seem to have to have something to soothe us in all kinds of times. And especially when it's our kids. Nobody wants to have a miserable child crying and screaming with a hot uh, face and arms and legs. But we have to remember, fevers are there for a reason, and we really want to just calm things down, make them feel better without necessarily medicating them. Now, let me talk about the other reasons why we might have fever reducers. Of course, the most common one is Tylenol. I'll get into that here in a minute, but we also have ibuprofen and other NSAIDs that people use for fever reducers. And of course, they are also pain relievers. And uh, well, nobody wants to be in pain either. So let's talk about why I don't have any Tylenol in my house. Uh, The dangers of these pills is real, for one thing. Tylenol can be lethal at even just 1,000 milligrams above the recommended daily dosage. A lot of people don't know that, but that is an absolute fact, and is the leading cause of acute liver failure in America above alcohol. Is that surprising to you? It was shocking to me when I first read it years ago, and it's considered by some to be the most dangerous drug ever made. What? What? Yeah, there's actually a quote from a doctor who says Tylenol is by far the most dangerous drug ever made. That was July 30th, 2017, Eric Hauschnick, uh MD. I may have messed up his name. Uh, so in the article I was reading where they interviewed Dr. Hauschnick. He's a New York neurologist and pain management specialist, and uh, taken out of context, of course, it sounds very hyperbolic, but they asked him to elaborate, and he did. He said, each year, a substantial number of Americans experience intentional and unintentional Tylenol-associated overdoses that can result in serious morbidity and mortality. Analysis of national databases show that acetaminophen, which of course is the active ingredient in Tylenol, associated overdoses account for about 50,000 emergency room visits and 25,000 hospital or hospitalizations. Sorry, every year just in America, acetaminophen is the nation's leading cause of acute liver failure. Like I just mentioned, according to the data from an ongoing study funded by the National Institutes of Health analysis of national mortality files shows that about 450 deaths occur each year from acetaminophen associated overdoses, and 100 of these are unintentional. Now, what is the deal with acetaminophen and Tylenol? Well, first off, we have to understand that 450 deaths is not a very high number. Uh, As drugs go, I I wish that was not the case, but we're in a country of 320 million people. And so, yeah, I mean, 450 deaths isn't great. You consider that of the 450, it sounds like around 350 were intentional, so suicide uh, overdose. Then you think, well, 100 accidental overdoses, you know, that stuff happens. People accidentally do things all the time. But I want to focus on the 50,000 emergency room visits. And there's this big difference between those numbers, right? It has to do with the TI, that's the therapeutic index for drugs. The TI is the ratio of the toxic dose to the effective dose. Obviously, the higher the toxic, or sorry, the uh, TI, the better, since the greater the separation of the therapeutic and toxic doses, the less likely an overdose. Here are some examples of low TI drugs low being bad, right? A little bit can be way too much. Lithium, warfarin, which is a blood thinner, and theophylline for asthma. And there are a few others as well. And I want to make sure that it's very clear there. That means that basically if a thousand milligrams is an effective dose or a therapeutic dose and two thousand milligrams is a dangerous dose, then it only takes one slip up of someone, you know, forgetting to take or forgetting they already took their medicine, taking it again, and it can kill them. That's not good, obviously. Well, that's kind of where we're at with Tylenol. Tylenol has had uh, a daily recommendation of 4,000 milligrams up until just a few years ago. Now it's 3,000 milligrams, and for good reason, because 10,000 milligrams is considered lethal. Well, that makes it have a therapeutic or a, a TI of about three, about three times the therapeutic dose is actually the lethal dose. And when it was 400, that was about two and a half times the therapeutic dose. However, there is a difference between lethal and dangerous. Perhaps only 450 people per year die from this. And I have heard numbers that are substantially higher than that, but we'll go with the 450. But 50,000 hospitalizations are from non-lethal, but very dangerous doses. Guess how big one of those doses might be? Well, depending on body size and liver health, that dose can actually be the recommended dose. It can be toxic in some people who are a little more sensitive to Tylenol, either because they're very small or they have a uh, liver that isn't functioning very well. The dose can also be just one or two pills above the recommended dose that can literally be either a dangerous or a lethal dose. So although 10,000 is considered the lethal dose for most, some people that can take 10,000 will not die, and other people who take 5,000 will. We also don't know the long-term damage of Tylenol daily over years of use, but we do know that the liver is a vital organ. We only have one of them, and abusing it on a daily basis cannot possibly be good for you. And in the short term, they've actually done studies, and believe it or not, a single dose of five 100 Valium pills is less dangerous than 50 Tylenol pills. Is that crazy? It's kind of crazy to me. Next, how about ibuprofen? Well, they sell it in the combo twin pack with 5,000 pills in each one at Costco. Okay, maybe it's 500 pills or 1,000, but it's a massive amount of pills. And that to me says that a lot of people are taking a lot of these every single day. Now, while single doses aren't particularly scary in in uh, ibuprofen like they can be with Tylenol, long term use is kind of horrifying. It is estimated that about seventeen thousand and perhaps as many as forty thousand people die annually from this. I want you to listen, regular, recommended use of ibuprofen and other NSAIDs. So let's just take ibuprofen, for instance. A prescription strength would be 800 milligrams. An over-the-counter strength would be 200 milligrams. Many people take the over-the-counter because it's easier than the prescription. And they'll still take four, which is 800 milligrams. And then you can take that three times a day. And I would anticipate that some people take it four times a day. And I've actually heard some people's doctors tell them to take it that much. Well, In the short term, again, not super dangerous like Tylenol would be at that kind of a dose. But in the long term, it's a problem because the reason that 17,000 to 40,000 people a year die every year in America because of these products is not because they've overdosed. It's because they've used the recommended dose for years on end. And as they do that, eventually it causes internal bleeding, and many of these people literally bleed to death from the inside. This is woefully underreported, but a real problem. And when I talk to uh, customers of mine at Vitality who are on these doses, they they'll tell me that their doctor says, you know what, you're only going to be able to do this for a few years or maybe a decade, and then you're going to have to stop because eventually you'll get ulcers, and we'll have hopefully have some other pain relief option for you. And I understand that some doctors, thank goodness, are trying not to get these people on opiates, and a lot of people are trying to stay off of opiates. But my word, there has got to be a better option than ibuprofen or Tylenol. And I believe that there are some better options, especially now, because now, legally, you can get CBD, which, of course, comes from hemp. And CBD is very effective for pain. In many cases, it's more effective than Tylenol or Ibuprofen, and in many cases, it's even more effective than opiates. CBD can be very effective. In Utah, and around most of the country now, you can get medical marijuana. In some places, you can get it recreationally. You don't even have to have a prescription or a drug card for it. And I would say that in most cases, unless people are abusing the marijuana to the point where they're driving with it and things like that, that would be a much safer approach to chronic pain management. I'm Fully in favor of that over opiates and long-term use of Tylenol and ibuprofen. CBD though doesn't even make you high and it can work very, very well for pain. And let's just put it this way. What if you're on 800 milligrams of ibuprofen and you're doing that three times a day? What if you could get to 400 milligrams three times a day? Or maybe you only have to take 400 milligrams every other day or so when things flare up a little bit because you're taking something like CBD Hallelujah. Less ibuprofen is better, even if it's only a couple of pills a day less or a couple of pills per dose, much, much, much better. Another fantastic thing that is extremely good for you is curamed, a form of turmeric turmeric, powerfully anti-inflammatory, incredibly good for uh, inflammation and pain. And a specific form called curamin has some additional natural pain relievers in it that people have had excellent success with. If you've got chronic arthritis pain, I just mentioned this, I think, on last week's show, so I won't go into detail, but something called Baxil is extremely effective. And if you have back pain or a lung, uh, lung inflammation or uh, stomach pain or gut pain. Boswellia is a fantastic herb from India that uh, helps to control LOX-5, and LOX-5 is something that creates pain and inflammation in those areas of the body. So there are lots of excellent options that I uh, recommend, all of which are much, much safer than these drugs. And of course, um, you can feel more it's okay to experiment a little bit more with these things because they're pretty hard to hurt yourself with. So if you have questions about those types of things, uh, let us know at Vitality. Give us a call 801-292-6662. Back to the medicine cabinet, Neosporin. Isn't Neosporin right next to your band-aids? And you know what? I'm all for Band-Aids. Band-Aids are great. Uh, I use them. I don't uh, think that they're a bad idea. They can keep infections away uh, by uh, covering up the wound. They can make things heal up a little faster by uh, preventing more irritation. I like to use them especially for, um, you know, like uh, little hangnails and stuff that I like to get just to keep it from hurting so much. But do we need Neosporin on all these things? Did you know that Neosporin has not one not two, but three different antibiotics in it. Did you know that there is almost never a need for even one antibiotic in cuts and scrapes, hangnails and acne? I mean, most of those things just aren't infected and probably won't get infected. And so why would we waste an antibiotic in it? Any more than we would waste an oral antibiotic on something that isn't an infection. On top of that, there is a unique strain of something called MRSA. You've probably heard of MRSA. This particular strain is called USA 300. Sounds like an automotive race, but uh, that's not what it is. It's resistant, um, uh, a resistant infection of the skin, a specific form of MRSA that is actually resistant to two of the three antibiotics found in Neosporin. And guess what? Many experts think that that is because of Neosporin being on the market as long as it has been. Of course, Johnson & Johnson denies that that could possibly be the case. And why wouldn't they? Well, they deny it because they make $28 million in sales annually on this stuff. But why is it called USA 300? Because it's unique mostly to America. It does pop up in other countries, but it originated here. And what else is unique in America? Well, massive use of neosporin, far more than any other country. This skin infection can literally kill people. If you don't know somebody who's had MRSA, well, thank goodness, because MRSA is nasty, nasty stuff. And I personally know a dear friend who nearly died from MRSA. And so we have to be, we have to recognize that MRSA is an antibiotic-resistant uh, superbug. It was created by overuse of antibiotics, and here we have this neosporin that's being put on little cuts and scrapes and things like that by well-meaning moms and dads uh, when their child gets hurt thinking, oh, this will help it heal faster and prevent it from getting infected. Well, there's even evidence that it might not make it heal faster, that it may actually slow down the healing uh, of the body's natural response, uh, and those antibiotics are potentially hurting everybody long term and you in the short term. There's also a few toxic ingredients in neosporin. We don't need neosporin. We don't need neosporin. It is a product that literally does not need to be on the market, and we would be better off without it. Not different than Twinkies, actually, as I think about it. But anyway, there are other options. Colloidal silver as a gel. Really, really effective. In fact, colloidal silver is effective against MRSA in clinical trials that have been done. Uh, it is effective against uh, st- strap. Sorry, staff. And strep and things like that. It is very, very good. And there is a gel specifically made by a company in Utah that I really, really like uh, called Silver Biotics that I use myself. It's a clear gel. Um, I still don't use it most of the time. If I'm going to put a Band-Aid on something or I want to cover something up. I figure I'm going to let my body heal itself whenever possible. But if there is something that looks like it could get infected or is a little infected, then absolutely I'm going to use colloidal silver gel on it, which is far less likely to create antibiotic resistance, uh, far more likely to actually help the infection, and much, much safer. Something else that I really love that is kind of in the same... Well, let let me hit this one. Most people have a $1.29 twenty nine bottle of brown hydrogen peroxide, uh, brown bottle of hydrogen peroxide. Much, 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 much better option than Neosporin. So give that a shot over the Neosporin. But another thing that I love is something called Complete Tissue and Bone. This formula has been around longer than I've been around. It was put out by Dr. Christopher. And for just about anything that you would want to rub an ointment on uh, for healing, Uh, for uh, helping with uh, topical pain relief, for helping the recovery of things like sprains and strains, things like that. The complete tissue and bone ointment is fantastic. I think every house should have a bottle of that on hand. Okay, how about the next one? Last week I talked about aloe vera, and I love aloe vera, and so I'm not going to go into anything real deep. We're just going to talk about it topically real quick because I want to reiterate something. But, uh, but but what I wanted to uh, get into on this is just uh, to, a reiteration of something because I had a customer come into Vitality asking me about it and I wanted to make sure I made it clear. Aloe vera is powerful for so many things above and beyond burns, sunburns and things like that. But there's two things I want to point out. You've got to get rid of your junk aloe vera. There are way too many of them out there that have artificial colors in them for one thing, which is an absolute sham. Why would you ever put a color in the one of the greatest natural products on earth? It ah, banana boat and all you guys, you just tick me off. If you've got one of those, get rid of it. If it doesn't, ha- if it has anything more than a little stabilizer in it. You got to get rid of it. It's bad aloe, but also they take out most of the healing properties, including most of the polysaccharides. And the polysaccharides in aloe are phenomenal for healing. So you want one that has the full uh, leaf in it uh, for almost every circumstance. That's going to be the best, or at least a very pure inner gel, like something by, uh, there's a company called George's that makes an excellent pure inner gel that's really good. But my favorite is the Life. And what I wanted to reiterate is they did an 18-month documented wound study with their skin gel on diabetic wounds way back in 1997. A clinical evaluation of full thickness wounds with tunneling and stage one through four was accepted for presentation at the 12th annual wound symposium in Dallas, Texas, with 100% resolution of all all 150 wounds in the study. That is phenomenal. Diabetics don't recover well from wounds. Oftentimes, diabetics have their toes and feet removed because of wounds that will not recover with much stronger, theoretically anyway, stronger stuff than aloe. But nope, this aloe vera healed 100% of the 150 wounds in the study. Fantastic stuff. It needs to be on your medicine cabinet shelf for sure. Now let's talk a little bit about oral health and then we're going to probably have to wrap it up. I may have to do a part two here because there's a lot of stuff, but let's talk about toothpaste. Now your typical toothpaste, and I just pulled Crest because I think it's the number one seller of the toothpaste that are out there. Uh, Your typical toothpaste is, oh, let's see, I've got a picture here. There it is, is uh, loaded with a bunch of stuff. The first thing it's going to have is fluoride, right? That's going to be your active ingredient. But what I've noticed is that drug companies, they love to put inactive ingredients in their products that are very, very dangerous that you just simply don't need let's look through the inactive ingredients on a tube of crest. It has water. That's not too bad. Hydrated silica. I'm good with that. Glycerin. There's some pluses and minuses on glycerin. Uh, Sorbitol, trisodium phosphate, sodium lauryl sulfate. Let's talk about sodium lauryl sulfate. It's in there to make it foam up in your mouth. Okay. According to the Environmental Working Group's Skin Deep Cosmetic Safety Database, sodium lauryl sulfate is a moderate hazard that has been linked to cancer, neurotoxicity, organ toxicity, skin irritation, and endocrine disruption. Mercola.com reports that SLS and SLES are often contaminated with 1,4-dioxane, a byproduct of the manufacturing process that is possibly carcinogenic to humans and may also cause negative effects in the kidneys, liver, and central nervous system, according to the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. Wow, sounds great. Well, we have it in our shampoos. We have it in uh, soaps and things like that. It's fairly common, body washes, those kind of things. But one of the things that's really disturbing about it being in our mouth, in our toothpaste, is that, well, it's in our mouth, right? And when you put it in your mouth, that's one of the best places to absorb any of this stuff. So if it is a carcinogen and we're brushing every morning and every night... Uh, that makes me a little nervous. I don't know about you. Uh, this particular toothpaste has some alcohol, some flavor, whatever that is, a cellulose gum, xanthan gum, sodium saccharin. Sodium saccharin, we know, is also carcinogenic, at least in rats. Uh, that's a sweetener that has been mostly, it's not on the market very much anymore, but it's found commonly in toothpaste. I'm not sure why polysorbate 80 uh, that's another one's got some issues sodium benzoate uh, acetyl pyridinium chloride I haven't even looked into that one benzoic acid polyethylene that's a plastic isn't that interesting titanium dioxide which is fantastic as a sunscreen by the way and then only four different colors of blue blue one lake yellow 10 lake Uh, iron oxides, another natural form of color, blue one and yellow five. Wow. What a list of toxic ingredients that you're brushing with every morning and every night. I would highly recommend you rethink that decision. If you're using Crest, Colgate, uh, any of the big national brands, you've got to get yourself a natural toothpaste. Um, uh, One of the main reasons also, let's talk about fluoride real quick, and then I think we're going to have to wrap it up for today. One of the main reasons dentists strongly recommend avoiding swallowing toothpaste is because it can contribute to a condition called dental fluorosis. And this makes me nervous with kids who are using toothpaste with fluoride in it. Dental fluorosis can create uh, white lines on your teeth. It can eventually cause the teeth to crumble. So basically have the opposite effect of what fluoride is supposed to have. And in long-term use, they've actually proven that, especially if it's in drinking water, that excess of fluoride over long-term can actually cause the crumbling of the hips and knees and things like that. So fluorosis is not good. Now, most people associate fluoride with something positive. Not so with me. I gave a tribute uh, to my dad earlier. He's the one that taught me that fluoride is toxic, toxic stuff. I'm going to read something um, that was put together uh, from a couple of uh, different sources. The, I shouldn't say a couple of different sources. There's only uh, one source here. Okay, here we go. Um, this is from Poison Paste, uh, talks about the fluoride history and they quote a few different people here. Gar- Gary Knoll, one of my heroes is quoted. Uh, he has a paper called fluoride, the deadly legacy. And he says that, uh, the history of fluoride, a toxic waste is, uh, <laughs> is one is the title. We would not purposely add arsenic to the water supply and we would not purposely add lead, but we do add fluoride. The fact is that fluoride is more toxic than lead and just slightly less toxic than arsenic. That's actually clinically proven. These words by Dr. John uh, Yamuyanis may come as a shock to you because if you're like most Americans, you have positive associations with fluoride. You may envision tooth protection, strong bones, and a government that cares about your dental needs. What you may not know is that the fluoride added to drinking water and toothpaste is a crude industrial waste product of the aluminum and fertilizer industries and a substance toxic enough to be used as rat poison. How is it that Americans have learned to love an environmental hazard? This phenomenon can be attributed to a carefully planned marketing program launched even before Grand Rapids, Michigan first became the first community to officially fluoridate its drinking water all the way back in 1945. As a result of this ongoing campaign, nearly two-thirds of the nation has enthusiastically followed Grand Rapids' example. But this push for fluoridation has less to do with a concern for America's health than with industry's penchant to expand at the expense of our nation's well-being. Now, remember, keep in mind that we absorb a high percentage of anything that gets into our mouths. It is a great place to absorb things directly into the bloodstream, and that's great for vitamins. But it's not great for fluoride. Okay, so I am going to have to cut it off. Dead gummit, I got too carried away. Uh, and so I'm going to hit you next week. We'll uh, at least touch on the rest of this fluoride conversation and we'll go into. Uh, some details on natural alternatives in toothpaste and oral care. I'm definitely going to hit mouthwash as well. And we'll we'll finish up the medicine cabinet. We're going to definitely do that on the next episode of Vitality Radio. Uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, go tell somebody. The easiest way to do that is to find it on your podcast app and share it with your friends and family. If you have more questions, give us a call, 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. 62 at vitality nutrition and bountiful no matter where you are we can help you from here thank you so much for listening to me jared st Clair. this is vitality radio you've been listening to the vitality radio podcast enjoy your week In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched and written by Jared St. Clair. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag VitalityRadioPodcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. The FDA has not evaluated this podcast. This podcast is provided with the understanding that information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for care by a medical professional. Thank you.